everyone. Welcome to the Tomorrow's MSP podcast, the voice of the medical services profession, where medical services professionals and industry experts contribute their voices about popular topics, including the impacts of artificial intelligence, MSP core competencies, department advocacy, leadership, and more. I'm your host, Lauren Leocoris, content editor for NAMS. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Ann Roberts, up counsel in medical malpractice for Vanway, Presby, and Williams in Dallas, Texas, and vice president of medical staff services with the Mount Sinai Health System, about the egregious medical malpractice case involving Christopher Dunch, aka Dr. Death, and how MSPs are indisputably valuable in preventing horrific instances such as this one. So go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Ann Roberts. I'm of counsel with the medical malpractice firm at Vanway, Presby, and Williams in Dallas, Texas, and I'm also the vice president for medical staff services at Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. I'm dual certified as a medical staff professional and have been in the field for over 20 years. Can you start by providing a bit of background on Christopher Dunch, aka Dr. Death? Dr. Dunch graduated with a dual MD and PhD from the University of Tennessee at Memphis College of Medicine. He was very bright. Um, He did his residency and fellowship uh, there at University of Tennessee, specializing in minimally invasive spine surgery. He was heavily involved in clinical research while he was there as well and developed a company called Dysgenics, which was focused on growing disc stem cells for use with back injuries. And then after he completed his training in 2011, he was recruited to the Dallas Minimally Invasive Spine Institute, and he worked the rest of his career, which was very short and only lasted, thankfully, a few years uh, there in Dallas. Did you hear? The NAM's 44th Educational Conference and Exhibition has shifted to a virtual format, taking place October 5th through 8th, 2020. Although we are not meeting in person, The new virtual format will provide the same exceptional educational content and experience in an even more dynamic and interactive digital knowledge exchange. Registration is now open, so register today. Were there early warning signs? Absolutely. There were reports of drug and alcohol abuse during his graduate medical education training. It's reported that his program were aware of these complaints or concerns and they sent him to a drug and rehab program um, or an impaired practitioner's program. And during his first few months in practice there in Dallas, it's reported that he was terminated from his employment at the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute for failing to meet patient care obligations. One example given was that he had abandoned a patient postoperatively without securing proper coverage for the patient and then he flew to Vegas. These are all very, very clear signs that there were, were going to be issues and concerns with this provider. Wow, that that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I just the level of, of neglect and I mean, was he at all like psychically or some, like psychologically analyzed after all of this happened? He was, he was. And so when they finally did a peer review investigation, they did require him to undergo a psychological evaluation. And I don't have the the, uh, Uh outcome for that, but I know his privileges were reinstated after and he continued to harm patients after that. What are some of the reasons Dunch was able to pass through the system and operate on patients in various Dallas-based hospitals, despite his record of poor clinical outcomes? Well, first... 
and foremost, the training program failed to report that he had prior issues during his training program or that he had been sent to a treatment program. The program also failed to ensure that he was properly trained before deeming him to have successfully completed his program um, before they unleashed him on the unsuspecting healthcare systems in Dallas. Um, they didn't disclose any of that information to the, pro to the hospitals. Um, and then when you look at the hospitals and you do an analysis of, of how was he able to just pass through the system, um, there was complete failure to conduct proper peer review and take proper corrective action. An immediate peer review investigation should have occurred or should occur any time a provider's clinical confidence or conduct is in question. So if you go back to the very beginning when he first got to Dallas and he abandoned the patient and failed to provide coverage, this should have immediately triggered some type of a probationary period or supervisory period for failing to follow the staff rules and regulations and policies and just ethical guidelines of ensuring that your patients receive proper coverage and patient care and, you know, hand off to another provider if you're going to go out of town. Um, when he had these some significant complications after what should have been routine procedures, he should have then been suspended until further investigation could occur or at a minimum placed under some level of supervision. He, there were complaints from other providers alerting the administrators to what a danger this provider was. And, and those outcomes and those complaints should have immediately prompted a corrective action, an immediate peer review investigation, which should have resulted in corrective action that should have been reported to the National Practitioners Data Bank and to the State Board. They should have also been transparent to all future facilities where he was applying to practice. And lastly, the State Medical Board also failed to conduct timely peer review and take proper actions to prevent him from harming further patients, despite multiple complaints that were made to the State Board. Like what you hear on the Tomorrow's MSP podcast? Visit namsgateway.org to catch up on more content and insights from medical services professionals and industry experts. What role does the National Practitioners Data Bank play in preventing this from occurring? So the National Practitioners Data Bank is meant to be a warehouse where all hospitals and all state medical boards and all insurance companies report any corrective action that is taken within specific guidelines. Um, and it's really to inform future hospitals and, and systems of any you know, action that's been taken previously. Hospitals have an obligation, for, you know, foremost, to ensure safe, quality patient care, above all else. Many hospitals fail to take proper action against providers as they fear a lawsuit or, or retaliation from the provider for various reasons. The bottom line is if you follow your medical staff bylaws and your peer review or corrective action policies and procedures, and take proper corrective action after conducting a thorough and prompt peer review investigation, then reporting a provider to the NPDB and the State Medical Board is warranted, and it protects future patients and the fear of a lawsuit should not prevent a hospital from doing the right thing. And failure to take proper corrective action and not reporting that to the NPDB or allowing a physician to voluntarily resign in lieu of taking corrective action is a complete failure on the hospital side to meet the minimum standard of what is best for patients. You know, some other examples is a lot of organizations will take corrective action for 29 days just to re avoid that reporting obligation, but they're really not doing patients any justice by doing things like that. And when a hospital queries the NPDB, they should take proper action to thoroughly investigate any reports that they do find on there, 
and to ensure that they're making an informed decision before granting prior privileges to treat patients at their facility. This includes ensuring you do not just get a standard verification letter from other hospitals, but you ensure they disclose whether the provider has had any prior, current, or pending corrective action taken, you know, related to any clinical confidence or conduct concerns. So the NPDB is only an effective tool if it's actually utilized and the hospitals do report as they really should be um, so that other, they can warn other hospitals whenever a provider is in danger. With regard to Dr. Death, how does this particular instance of malpractice demonstrate the fundamental importance of MSPs and their role in credentialing? All right, absolutely. They're definitely the gatekeepers because we're typically the first point of contact after recruitment and a provider's made an offer, or if they're practicing the community and they want to apply for clinical privileges, the first step is the medical staff office. So MSPs must be detail-oriented and have thorough credentialing practices. You know, the first, you know, screening providers and not having a thorough credentialing and privileging process or failing to properly screen providers really puts the organization at risk and it puts patient, patients at risk later on. So MSPs also need to be educators and advocates. So MSPs should ensure that the physician leaders understand the peer review process, the reporting requirements, and the implications for failing to conduct proper and timely peer review. MSPs should also act as an advocate. If they see something that's occurring that's not following the guidelines, such as, you know, the organization wanting to allow a provider to resign in lieu of taking corrective action or in lieu of an investigation, or they're trying to negotiate, how can we take action that's not reportable? They can be an advocate and say, well, you know, is that really the right thing to do? Or should we just, what is the best for patients? What's best for the organization to protect everyone? You know, and if the proper, if the answer to that is take proper corrective action that ends up being reportable, then again, as long as you're following your bylaws and policies, then you should not have any issues. Given this abhorrent instance of medical malpractice, in what ways do organizations discern the difference between mistakes and intentional action to prevent this from happening again? Well, the responsibility really lies on the medical staff leaders and the organized medical staff. Um, as well as the Board of Trustees, who are responsible for overseeing the performance and quality of all providers that they grant clinical privileges to. It's the responsibility of the medical staff to provide that level of oversight, and it's the responsibility of the Board of Trustees to ensure that the medical staff are carrying out their duties. Organizations have to, they must have a way to quickly identify clinical care concerns, such as the immediate reporting and evaluation of any unanticipated outcomes, or anything else that makes a provider an outlier. Another example would be lengthy OR times for common cases or complaints from colleagues or nursing staff. There must be a culture also within the organization that allows staff to feel that they can escalate concerns without fear of retribution. And then all parties should, of course, again, follow their bylaws and due process policies, making sure that it's timely and that all I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and that they're doing a thorough investigation and taking prompt action. And any closing thoughts you might have? Sure. Um, I would say that medical staff leaders and your legal team, who is heavily involved in this, they must put patient safety first over the fear of a potential lawsuit from the provider. They should take the proper corrective action to protect patients, not only at their facility, but all future patients as well. When an issue is quickly identified, it's identified it is a lot easier to put into place remediation measures to help the provider get back on track if possible than it is to deal with the downstream effect after patients have already been harmed. 
Um, and that typically happens when you're not addressing these issues up front. There are regulatory standards in place to help you know, guide organizations, such as a focus professional practice evaluation and ongoing professional practice evaluations that are in place to provide that focus monitoring when you first grant clinical privileges and then an ongoing monitoring of the provider in comparison to the peers over the period of time that they have clinical privileges. But in between that, then you have the peer review process and a, a culture that allows reporting so that if there are issues or concerns identi identified, they can take immediate action and protect patients. Thank you for listening to the Tomorrow's MSP podcast, the voice of the medical services profession. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Ann Roberts for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in to the next episode to stay up to date on the latest news and insights. Read more in-depth articles on trending topics by visiting us at namsgateway.org. Until next time.